You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. We're underway. This is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. And I'm with John McWhorter. Uh, John's professor at Columbia University. I'm a professor at Brown University with the Economics Department and the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, which sponsors The Glenn Show. We're the black guys at bloggingheads.tv, and we're back again in the midst of pandemic crisis. John's sitting in New York City, and uh, I understand that you guys got a real problem there uh, with the coronavirus. How's it going? Well, you know, we are sheltering in place. Um, There's some semantic ambiguities, but basically we're supposed to go outside as little as possible, and the supermarket shelves are often quite sparse of many of the items that one might want, including meat, actually. <laughs> and um, you, you know, most stores are closed, although it's eccentric what's determined to be necessary. Sherman Williams Paint is still open, although not letting customers all the way into the store. But apparently paint is essential. But, you know, there are lines outside of pharmacies because they only want to let so many people in at a time. And, you know, we have no right to compare ourselves to what people went through during the Great Depression or in Weimar, Germany, et cetera. But you get a little hint of what it must feel like when life falls apart. And then once again, I'm saying there's no remote comparison. But, yeah, it's disorienting, and you wonder what you're going to tell your kids. Luckily, mine at five and eight are a little too young to quite register what's going on. But, you know, they can't spend time with their friends because you have to stay six feet apart and you're not supposed to visit each other's homes. And so it's only been two weeks of this so far, but I'd be interested to see what happens with another couple of weeks. But, you know, Glenn, I want to kick this off with something. This real quick. Yeah. Stanley Crouch, Stanley Crouch the wonderful Stanley Crouch. Yeah. Curmudgeon. <laughs> Yeah, and um, a brilliant and, and, and multi-talented curmudgeon. Jazz man, literature man. No, Stanley exactly. Crouch is a noteworthy figure in, uh, in our generation, my generation, sorry, not yours, <laughs> of African-American intellectuals. Uh, no, no, I have great admiration for yeah. Stanley He and I, when I kind of, when I was the Coleman Hughes, he kind of took me under his wing. He was always very nice to me. We used to talk on the phone sometimes and talk about, you know, how things come around. 9-11 which is almost 20 years ago now, yeah. and felt like this for a while. He was saying, he called me up probably on 9-13, and he said, well, John, what do you think about putting together an anthology? Um, and I'm thinking that we're going to call it Blacks After the Bomb. What he meant was that an event like 9-11, and I mean, it's getting to the point where it, it's easy to forget how dislocating and scary that felt for about the first 10 minutes. Yeah. You were worried that more was coming. Right. He said, this will stop. I don't think he said the race hustlers, but he was saying that the people who are always crying wolf about race and exaggerating, they'll stop because the bomb will make it clear that what we really need to think about is our shared humanity. And these days I've been thinking, I wonder what Stanley would say about this. And I'm thinking, yeah, blacks after the corona. Are you telling me that Stanley Crouch has passed? I'm sitting here thinking everybody's going to think I'm saying that. I don't know the details, but okay. yeah, go ahead. Not not well. And I don't, think we're going to be hearing from him anymore from what I've heard from some. Okay. I'm very sorry to hear that, but I, I, I had not known. Uh, he and I are both members of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And that's right. Yeah. Uh, I, it seems to me we would have been notified if uh, one of our members of his prominence had passed away. And it's I did yeah. But there's a reason. But, uh, I, I wish him well, but okay. I haven't heard from him for a while. That's true. Yeah. But he said that, and I was thinking, well, that didn't happen, you know, after 9-11. <laughs> Not even for a minute. Ask uh, who's the guy. I think his name is Ta-Nehisi Coates. <laughs> Ask him about 9-11 in the race card. <laughs> yeah, one day we need to discuss him. But, yeah. um, but on, this, on this one, I'm wondering, is there anything to say about that? Because... I haven't read anything racial about this yet. I've read classical things. That was a stupid word. Class-related things about it, but not race. And I imagine that there are people who are about to start writing pieces like that. But I wonder what that angle will be. Well, I think that we've got more of a chance this time around that the catastrophe will engender a more universalist uh, discussion about social politics. Not that it's going to eliminate uh, 
people playing the race card or the race issue or concerns about diversity. But I call to your attention, for example, the fact that when the Democrats attempted in this uh, most recently passed legislation, this uh, stimulus and rescue package coming out of the uh, House and the Senate to uh, require diversity on corporate boards as a condition of corporations getting um, aid uh, from the government. You know, they have to have uh, an appropriately diverse corporate board uh, to qualify for aid. Uh, mm-hmm. That didn't fly. And in fact, I think it exposed the Democrats to the charge that they were, you know, playing uh, partisan politics with uh, the uh, emergency situation. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is that, you know, if I said all lives matter uh, two months ago, all lives matter, you know, everybody starts laughing and they just, re- uh, you know, rele- relegate me to, you know, the dustbin of history. And I'm just one of these, old <laughs> black, uh, you know, kumbaya, colorblind conservatives. But if you say all lives matter today, not in connection with policing, but just, uh, oh, look who's here. Meet Vanessa, folks. Vanessa, you're going to steal the show. (laughs) Dolly? Tell Dolly to come here for a second. You can't do Vanessa without doing Dolly, that's for sure. (laughs) Blogging kids. But you see what I'm getting at. All Lives Matter kind of has a more acceptable ring to it nowadays since the lives that we're talking about are being measured in the tens and tens of thousands, and everybody is susceptible to falling uh, prey to uh, to this malady. Yeah, I hope. I mean, not, you know, I don't want to see any more deaths than seem to be necessary. One quick pause here, folks. This, for posterity, is Dahlia at eight. So there she is. Have you been to a birthday party? Hi, Dahlia. What are you wearing? Say hi. Say hi, Gwen. Hi, Gwen. Hi. <laughs> okay, so this is, we're, we're having a very important discussion. Hi, Gwen. So, yeah, he's... He's Nobody's going to remember a word that you and I have said in this conversation. <laughs> you guys are beautiful. So nice to meet you. Okay. Hi, Gwen. Yes, I'll, yeah, I will see you two a little later. Okay. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Dahlia. Bought her a ukulele. Anyway, so. Oh, well, my question to you would be, would be, should it? Uh, temper. I mean, was Stanley Crouch uh, right in his aspiration, even if not in his prediction? Should the concern about racial inequality uh, be uh, off the table? It wasn't off the table in the HIV epidemic, for example. No. Right? Uh, the racial disparity and in the incidence of the infection was a big part of the political uh, landscape. And likewise here, I, I sure hope we don't get to that. But if it comes to, uh, you know, lots of people dying prematurely, there's undoubtedly going to be a disparity because people are exposed to a different extent. and They have different degrees of resources. Should the economy stay closed down for a protracted period of time? The consequences of that unemployment and the financial stress will hit people with low wealth holdings. And we know there's a racial disparity in wealth holdings disproportionately. Um, maybe we should not retire the race card. Maybe that's the time to really be concerned about the race card uh, when uh, the country is really up against it. You know, what this brings up is what's going to be an interesting little ethical conundrum or a semantic one, because, yeah, I don't think we need to wonder. Once the deaths start coming in large numbers, it will be possible to look at how things go and see a disproportionate impact upon, say, for example, the black and very elderly or the black and sickly because of, you know, a whole cocktail of factors that might lead to that. It'll be proven that, you know, you wouldn't expect this many black people to have died under normal conditions. There's a disproportion. And so according to the statistics of people like, say, Ibram Kendi, the disproportionate impact means that this is racist. So the idea will be that the way we dealt with the coronavirus crisis was racist because it had this disparate impact based on race. And that's going to be an interesting interpretation of the facts, because I think it will be clear to everybody that what started this was something out of the blue, or at least out of China, that came here because the United States was ridiculously underprepared. And the lack of preparation is going to so clearly dwarf anything having to do 
with doctors feeling black people's pain less than white people's pain. That that I'm certain that that will be part of the equation. But I think it's going to look a little tinny. It's going to make people maybe realize that we need to question this vast extension of the word racist we use. So it sounds like Birmingham and disparities in 2020 are different sides of the same coin. It gets to the point where we're having extremely abstract conversations. So that's just something that makes me think about. I, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think you're both right to anticipate should we end up in a worst case scenario that there would be large and noticeable racial disparities just because mortality is certainly going to depend on the extent of pre-disease uh, uh, health conditions of the population, right. economic conditions. So if you have more diabetes, if you have more high blood pressure, uh, if you have more, I don't know, emphysema, if you have more liver issues, uh, you know, and uh, kidney issues, uh, heart disease, uh, obesity, um, in one ethnic group than in another, you're going to, other things equal, get higher uh, morbidity and mortality rates from the uh, virus in that group. After, yeah. Now, uh, the NAACP leading a campaign on, uh, premised on the racism of the uh, response to the crisis because of differences in mortality rates doesn't sound like a political winner to me when the misery is so widespread in the population. And the natural retort Come on, we'll have plenty of time to talk about, uh, you know, racial disparity. Let's help the people who need help, all of them, including, of course, the African-American and the Latino and whatnot. Of course, we want to help them, but we want they, we don't want to help them any more, really more urgently than we want to help anybody else because everybody is suffering here. And strikes yeah. me that that's just a winner argument. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is now, folks, this is Gracie the cat. Um, We've Gracie, met the whole household. Except for the lovely lady. Everybody. And, of course, um, everybody is at home uh, because nobody can go outdoors. So there's right. no reason why we shouldn't introduce our family. Uh, my wife is somewhere around here. If she comes in the room, um, I will ask her if she's prepared to place herself in front of the camera for a moment. <laughs> that is part of this. Anyway, but I, I, I'm not trying to put any pressure on your uh, on your beautiful spouse, whose name escapes me at the moment. I'm sorry. Her name is Martha. And Indeed she is... is Martha, as a therapist, is a healthcare worker, so she's not she is not oh. limited to home, and so that's what what this is. So oh. yeah, all of this has me as the primary home person. This is because um, I can't go to work, so this has been very complicated. But you know, it's funny what you say about NAACP, because notice that even bringing that up is a little 20 years ago now. And we don't need to go into a whole business about how bad the NAACP, how ineffective the NAACP is. But the truth is the ecology has changed. It's not the NAACP now. That would have been a quasium fume thing back in the day. Or, you know, Benjamin Jealous would have done it. But even then, things were kind of ebbing. Now it's the black punditocracy. The people who make those sorts of statements and get people thinking, here it comes again. What Kwesi Mfume was doing about, say, grading the networks on their racism in the year 2000, that's now Ta-Nehisi Coates writing about reparations for the Atlantic. So it wouldn't be the NAACP. It's going to be the people with three names. And they're the ones who are going to start that conversation. And I assume that they've got their pens at the ready. They're, they must be waiting. There has to be a racial angle. Well, they've been t- taking a pretty low profile of late. I, I, I've been reading the uh, press fairly closely over the last uh, two, three weeks, uh, and I haven't seen much of uh, that kind of voice at all. Uh, I'm surprised. Yet. Yeah, I'm very, uh, yeah. I'm very surprised. But no, you, it's gonna, it's gonna look tinny when it happens, unless there's something that we're not anticipating. Yeah, that's right. Well, it looked tinny to me all along. So there. Oh, one other thing though that we have to bring up. Katrina, where the idea there was that race was what it was all about. And something that I mentioned at the time, and I never got a real answer to, is Hurricane Andrew. Hurricane Andrew, a few years before, had been the same kind of incompetence. Most of the people who were victims of it were white. It got around. There was no internet really yet, and so it was easy to forget. But Hurricane Andrew was the same catastrophe with the nation underqualified to address a hurricane when it should have been. Then when one happens to hit in a particular part of New Orleans. What year was Andrew? 
Andrew was 92, I believe. So I shouldn't say a few years, but within recent memory, especially in 2005, I remembered it. And I remember. Yeah, well, I was trying to see whether a Democrat or a Republican was in the White House at the time. And if it was 92, Clinton was in his, uh, not yet a president. And George Herbert Walker Bush was president. I'm pretty sure Andrew, mm, or was it 93? But it was there was this big catch line where yeah, we can uh, look it up. an official down there uh, who was a woman, her name was Diane Diane something, said, you know, where the hell is the cavalry on this one? And she made a lot of news for yelling that because they just weren't getting their aid. And that wasn't racial. And then when it happens to affect black people, now there was things that were said in the media about the black people where you could have a conversation. But the idea that George W. was a racist I didn't quite. I found that kind of tinny, and yet yeah, Andrew was ninety two, as you uh, as you initially said. Did you check? Yeah, it, it was, was in the summer of ninety two. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it Bob was Bennett. actually actually I think it was after the Rodney King uh, civil disturbances in um, Los Angeles, if I am not mistaken. You're not because I do know because I remember I got my bike stolen during a Rodney King protest and this would have been in the spring of 92. So yeah, that that was definitely then. I was going to ask you what you make of the debate about uh, the use of China virus, Wuhan virus being racist. We're talking about racism. Uh, the president used the term others in the press, in the right wing press particularly have used made this explicit reference to China. The president defended himself at one of his uh, daily news conferences when he was uh, aggressively questioned about it, saying, look, it came from China. It came from China. There's nothing racist about it. It came from China. Just being accurate. I'm just saying. And other people who are concerned that to identify it with China, Chinese, uh, is to uh, engage in a kind of uh, subtle uh, ethnic, um, you know, derogation. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, um, to refer to something like this as coming from somewhere else may seem like a natural gesture. It may seem like just a casual kind of labeling. But we do have to remember that that labeling does tend to be based in a certain xenophobic us-against-them attitude, such as the flu of 1918 being called the Spanish flu. And there was nothing Spanish about it. It's just that the Spanish media were more honest about the Spanish flu. If anything, I think it was found to have probably started in somewhere in Missouri, but it was called the Spanish flu, the idea being that it's this invader from the outside. It's perhaps almost comforting to refer to refer to a pandemic in that way, but I think that the better angels of our nature as enlightened people is to get past that because it does tend to help stoke the fires of you know, partisan and even nasty behavior. And it's it's as simple as this. You can't draw any direct lines of causation, but anti-Asian, you know, racism is up now. Although from the conversations we have, I would hate for it to turn out that the reports that we're getting are exaggerated. You know, you, you have to be careful with the way the media reports these things, but I will take it on faith that Asian people are getting spat at and yelled at with the idea being, you're Chinese, you brought this mess in. For us, if that's true, for the president of the United States to be sitting here calling it the Chinese virus as this sort of towel snapping, ha, I can say what I want gesture is really, really tacky. I'm not saying that Trump caused the xenophobia, but no, it shouldn't be called the Chinese virus. It's the coronavirus. Well, here, here would be a counter argument. Um, first of all, let's not impute motives to uh, Trump. We don't actually know. Uh, so would this counter argument would go. Um, he might have just been saying the following. The Chinese Communist Party clamped down on people who were trying to warn the world about this virus. They uh, dissembled. They equivocated. They lied. Glad I'm listening. I'm just going to get something. Keep talking. They locked up people uh, who were in a position to let the world know. They uh, closed down modes of communication uh, they tried to manage this problem, and it got out of hand. And that's what I want the world not to forget. Uh, I don't mean to say that uh, either uh, anybody who's not an American is a threat to us and we need to put up a wall to keep them out, or people who happen to be Chinese are somehow or another um, um, personally responsible for something that has come happens to have originated uh, in a place in China. 
What I mean to do is to remind the world in this competition between the United States and the uh, Chinese uh, communist uh, government that uh, there are good guys and bad guys, and the Chinese communist government is a bad guy. And I don't want that thought to be missed by uh, trying, you know, politically correct uh, avoidance of factually accurate uh, uh, imputations of responsibility. I, that's a perfectly reasonable argument. It, it, it gets down to what your priorities are. Because, yeah, China fucked up on this. There's a whole story that needs to be told more clearly about the way China has done things, the way China organizes its markets. And I mean, it's outdoor markets. Yeah, oh, that. There, yeah the wet markets. Yeah, there, there are some yeah. issues to be discussed. But calling it Chinese virus could be thought of as calling attention to China's China's role in this catastrophe. But to what end? Why do we yeah. want to... Well, I just I just gave what one end might be, and I want to be clear. I'm not advocating calling it the Chinese no. virus. I'm quite happy with COVID-19. I, I, I don't have a, a need to call it the Chinese virus. I'm just no, I'm saying just a saying person it. who did so might not be right. motivated by racism. That's all I was saying. I would say to that reasonable person, whatever your, your motives are for wanting to keep hitting that note of calling our attention to China's culpability here, wouldn't you consider it more important to not stoke the fires of atavistic unthinking racism against Chinese people. What's your priority? Mine would be the latter. Some people's might be the former, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure I understand that. All right. Let me ask you another kind of question. This is a virus question. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York. <laughs> uh, let us just say his profile has been elevated substantially by the tragic, uh, you know, uh, pandemic uh, uh, impact on New York state and New York, City, I gather some significant fraction of active cases of coronavirus infection are in New York State, and a significant fraction of those are in New York City. You're our hotspot and epicenter of the of the epidemic, of the pandemic. Now, here's Andrew Cuomo. Uh, he's looking pretty good as a leader, uh, at, at least from my perspective. He's coming off very strong, and I even entertained the thought last night. Should we expect when the Democrats get to Milwaukee to choose a presidential nominee that the party bigwigs are going to get in a room and they're going to say, oh, no, man, this octogenarian uh, Joe, Joe Biden who could par- barely put two words together and certainly can't go toe to toe with Donald Trump in terms of uh, standing up. And, you know, Trump goes, gives these press conferences, he stands there for three hours answering questions. And some of the stuff he says might be silly, but he's standing there for three hours answering questions. Now, Joe Biden couldn't pull that off. Uh, under any circumstances, what's something? So I'm thinking the party fathers are going to play, are going to pull some kind of coup d'état <laughs> on the primary process, and they're going to uh, scuttle uh, their uh, their uh, less than compelling uh, candidate in favor of who? In my who is not certainly not somebody who ran in the campaign because Biden actually beat them at the polls. This is an emergency move, and they'd have to come in with somebody like the New York governor who's uh, looking pretty good. Is that a crazy thought? No. Isn't it funny how it almost looks like literature? Yeah. The the primaries come down to leaving out all the more dynamic and interesting people, including the black ones, and it gets down to these two old, unwell men. And I admire Biden and Sanders very much, but they're too old. And okay, I'm away. I know some nonagenarians who I would be happy to see president. But generally, past about 80, once you're getting that far, there are all sorts of things you can do, but maybe not be president. And with Biden, it's clear. It's not that he has dementia, but it's just that he's past a certain point. And with Sanders, frankly, he just had a heart attack. That's it. And so between him being too left for the moderates and him having just had a heart attack, and him being uncharming. Forget it. And so then it comes down to this, frankly, this good guy who's nearing his dotage doesn't have the flame that he used to have. And apparently it's going to be him versus Trump. And you worry. Then all of a sudden, here comes this person in healthy, late middle age. And he's got the demotic touch. He sounds like an ordinary guy, Andrew Cuomo. And yet he gives these fireside chats, basically, where he gives the statistics, he has command of the information, he does asides that aren't all about how great he is, but that are actually things that can help 
a family in New York State or New York City that is under siege. It's clear that he genuinely cares. Yeah, all of a sudden Al Smith is is, is back to life. He should be the nominee. That's clear. That's not the way it was going to happen. But wouldn't it be nice if it turned out that no, Joe Biden, you know, you, you waited too long. You didn't get lucky. Instead, we're going to try this because he could go toe to toe with Trump and he could, Cuomo could win, especially since he's being the anti-Trump right now, just the other day. And I'm not yeah. just saying this to, to bring it around into a circle. Those two little girls we just saw, we were in the car listening to him on the radio. And I said, girls, these are talks. I explained to them what a governor was. I said, it's not the president. It's not the mayor. It's the governor. I said, these talks that we're hearing when we're in the car on the weekend, I said, we're, these are going to be history. You should remember that you were little girls listening to this person giving these talks because he's making a lot of people feel much better. And he's better. I've introduced him to the word jackass for Trump. I said, and he's much nicer and smarter than that jackass. And you know what? This man might be president one of these days. I said, listen to Governor Cuomo. I actually said that the other day in the car. I want it. I want that. But I don't think it's that's not how it happens these days. I want Al Smith. <laughs> jackass, huh? You have your girls calling the president of the United oh, States a jackass. I had Dahlia, Dahlia saying that when she was Vanessa's age. Jackass. I want them to understand that concept. But, I mean, motivated by the existence of Donald J. Trump, not not the generic use of the term. Yes, it was for him. <laughs> I said, I taught her Donald Trump is a jackass. I want that known. So, yeah, but what do you think about Cuomo? Uh, I don't know much about him. I, uh, he's been around for a while. I gather uh, he's doing a good job as governor of New York State. Uh, I'm inclined to take his side when he gets into a, a shouting match with uh, your mayor, uh, de Blasio, because <laughs> I think his views on a lot of issues are closer uh, to mine than our de Blasio's. Yes. Um, I have been impressed with the way he's been leading the state of New York in these last uh, weeks. Uh, with his, uh, I saw a piece of his in the New York Times where he had, let's see, it was, uh, localized, federalized, and mobilized was his, is how I remember his, his, uh, message. Uh, localized the, um, act, uh, the testing, um, uh, federalized the shutdown, and mobilized the, uh, military in order to expand hospital capacity. Hmm. So, uh, don't let the central government be the only or the main vehicle for um, uh, getting the uh, the testing and ventilators into people's hands. They can help, but the, this has basically got to be a local function. Uh, but the one thing they can do is to not have this rolling shutdown thing where one state shuts down, the other state stays open, people cross state lines, stuff gets too late, it kind of defeats the purpose. If you're going to have shutdowns, let's have a federalized uh, shutdown. And the other thing is um, – that we anticipate a shortage of hospital capacity and we need to take action against that now. Cuomo was coherent. He was forceful. He was articulate. He was uh, compassionate, you know, empathetic. Uh, I can't quote chapter and verse, but uh, I just thought uh, this is uh, this is not unreasonable. But I also uh, don't think that the president has been doing a bad job as a leader, which I'm sure you couldn't possibly agree with. I know, look at you. Look at you. No, I think he's been transparent. He's, he's Trump. Now, he didn't stop being Trump. Okay, so you do get the narcissism and you do get the... What do you mean in his briefings every day? Uh, I don't see the briefings every day, but the briefings that I've seen... <laughs> I shouldn't. <laughs> the last one I... Oh, wait a minute. Why should I not see these briefings? In the last one I saw, he announced that he wanted to reopen the country by Easter. Now, I'm not supposed to listen to that? This is the You're president of the United States. I don't know how I'm going to know what he's saying if I don't listen to what he says. And so how do you feel about the, the Supreme Leader when he has ideas like that for the reasons that he does? He's a baboon. He wants it open for Easter. And you ask him, why Easter? And he said, oh, well, that just seemed like a nice day. What he's saying, <laughs> that's not what he said. What he's, he's saying is, like, what he's saying is, I'm always, in this position. I'm always in this position of defending this guy. What he he's saying is you food. can't keep the country closed down forever. It's a hard problem deciding how to make the trade-off. And I'm uh, inclined to try to open things up sooner rather than later. And I don't want to impose a, 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 a cure that will be worse than the disease, quote, unquote. That's fine, but 
what he was saying was that, therefore, we're going to let everybody out of their houses and go back to something like normal in less than three weeks against the counsel of any credentialed scientist in the country. That's and he's also he been walking around. He's been walking around saying that the people at, you know, Center for Disease Control are amazed at how much he knows about epidemiology. Yeah, he really wants us to believe that he knows what he's doing. These aren't just foibles. This is this is a jackass. I mean, you can't. I'm sitting here trapped in my house, basically, and yet even I'm saying I can't go to work. I'm saying no, it cannot be by Easter because too many people will die, including maybe me. You think that that should be pardoned because of his intentions and his charisma? I hope First not. of all, that's not what he said. It's an aspiration to be looked at. Fauci kept, uh, 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 stepped up and said, uh, well, we'll have to see, we'll have to see, and we'll have to see, but it's an aspiration to be looked at. Um, secondly, it's not open everything up all at once. It could be, and it probably would be to the extent that there was an opening up, a targeted thing where you try to take into account the differential, uh, exposure by region, uh, by demography, you know, age and such like that. And you might say certain people could go back under certain circumstances and certain kinds of establishments could open and so forth and so on. So it's not a blanket uh, throw off uh, all caution and simply pretend like nothing had happened. Um, and thirdly, I think it is a matter of leadership to allow people to uh, force people, in fact, to focus on the difficult equities that are in conflict with each other here, one of them being public health. The other one being uh, um, economic health. And that conflict doesn't go away because, quote, unquote, a jackass happens to be president. And I and I think this instinct to, uh, first of all, I'm not going to listen to him because he's a jackass. Secondly, anything he says, I'm going to reject out of hand because I think I know what his motives are. And he's too stupid to know what's going on is uh, is very unhelpful, John, in a time of crisis and emergency. You go to the crisis with the president you've got not the president that you wish you had, okay? He's the president that we've got. A lot depends on him succeeding here. This schadenfreude, this almost, he's so bad, he's a jackass, I hope that he fails or I can't, uh, I'm just going to wait here with my arms crossed and my toe tapping until I see him fall flat on his face, um, is certainly uh, not a posture that I will embrace. I want him to succeed. I appreciate his transparency. I'm sympathetic with the plight that he confronts. And I give him the benefit of the doubt. Yes, I'm prepared to give the president of the United States in a time of war the benefit of the doubt. I am not prepared to start carping about, you know, uh, his personality uh, or whether or not he's enriching his companies with an aid package. Uh, you know, you, you guys, I'm talking about the Trump haters. No, I'm not a Trump hater. You guys have fallen flat on your face. Once after another, after another time in your irrational hatred of the man whom a Democratic Electoral College majority made president of the United States. You don't like him. Go to the ballot box and vote. Meanwhile, he's the president. He's... Thanks for letting me say that, John. Because <laughs> okay. I know I know it's pissing you off. <laughs> it's tough. We're where we were last time. Yeah, okay. And um, <laughs> it really is important to me that I really do feel that he is disinclined to wrap his mind around the detail or the gravity of what we're concerned with. So I'm not going to say that he was once caught trying to put M&Ms in alphabetical order. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say <laughs> He just did say it. <laughs> it's funny as hell. <laughs> I'm not going to say that he would lose an argument with a cloud. I'm not going to say that he's, that he's dumb. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. But this is a question, Blaine. Who was your favorite president? Who was, your what? Who was your favorite president? Who do you think got the job done best? Because I'm a little oh perplexed as to what you consider stewardship of this office to be defined by. Who was the best one? Uh, and you're, on. you're allowed to say Reagan. Uh, well, I don't think Reagan did a bad job uh, leading the country. I mean, he was Reagan, and there are things to argue about. Uh, but uh, look, in retrospect, morning in America looks pretty good. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, t- tear down that wall, looks pretty good. Uh, you know, trust but, fair, but verify looks pretty good. Uh, post Carter malaise and uh, uh, the Reagan uh, 
uh, eight years in retrospect look pretty good. And like I've said here before, I think if you were going to put somebody from the 20th century uh, besides Teddy Roosevelt on Mount Rushmore, who's on Mount Rushmore, uh, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and TR. Yeah. If you're going to put somebody on Mount Rushmore uh, from the 20th century, FDR would be at the head of the queue, I imagine. Yeah. But uh, Ronald Reagan would be way ahead of JFK in that calculation. He'd be way ahead of of Dwight Eisenhower in that calculation. In terms of who had an effect, yeah. Yeah, in terms of the impact. So, But no, I wouldn't put, you know, I I mean, how are you going to not say Lincoln? Um, I, I, I guess if I had to... No, I mean in your life. Oh, in my lifetime. Uh, presidents who we can know up close. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like Johnson before Vietnam, for example? Uh, you know, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of what was good about him was before he was president. But um, Nixon... Yeah, before, great society. Think, Nixon was not a bad president ever to get accepted. I mean, when you tally up all that was accomplished during Nixon's uh, presidency, including opening up to China and the reset of the uh, Cold War uh, scenario and also, you know, environmental regulation stuff and um, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, he tried to pass uh, a guaranteed uh, minimum income and uh, got very close to doing it. Families yeah. got very close to doing it, but didn't succeed. Nixon is the father of federal affirmative action, uh, federally um, uh, mandated and promoted affirmative action, which you know, I, I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, but it, it definitely was not trivial. And it certainly he was competent. He was, not, he was not a person who didn't know, you know, his butt from a hole in the ground uh, around uh, the uh, issues of the day. Um, so but, the question uh, here is, along the lines of those men, in what sense is Trump comparable? What, what, has, he, what has he affected? What is he leaving behind? What's his impact? Okay. So <laughs> uh, my hand is being forced here, people. Yep. Trump is a tribune of a segment of our polity that uh, felt that they weren't uh, being represented by uh, establishment political institutions. Uh, the people who were left behind in the dusty towns of uh, the Midwest uh, the people who are uh, Second Amendment uh, believers, uh, who are religious uh, uh, devotees, uh, who are uh, turned off by uh, the coastal elite uh, management of uh, the culture, uh, who are pro-life, um, who, who are uh, white and worried about the border, worried about the future of the country. They want their country back. There are these people who are out there. They are akin to the Leave voters in the Brexit controversy in the UK. Trump speaks for them. He took over the Republican Party, a showman, um, a uh, uh, nasty uh, 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 stage fighter who upstaged his uh, much more experienced opponents with his uh, showmanship. Um, He... uh, uh, managed to get himself elected president of the United States over and against the machine of the of the Clinton uh, Democratic Party uh, apparatus. And um, he's delivered uh, for people who said they wanted judges like Kavanaugh um, and Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. He's appointed them uh, for, for people who said that they wanted seriously to take uh, action to limit uh, the incursion of people without authorization coming into the country across the border. He stood up for them. For people who said it's time for America to come home from all the foreign wars, uh, being the savior of the world, uh, uh, people who found their identities in a more uh, Americocentric and a less globalized uh, sense of uh, who they are in the 21st century. He spoke for those people that got elected. It's not Trump. And this is what I've constantly said here. And I'll just say it again. In my mind, the sky's not falling because Donald J. Trump is president. Rather, the tectonic plates underneath us are shifting in terms of the sensibilities of a significant minority, 40% or so, of the American population. Those are the people who were elected him. Your argument ought not to be with Trump per se. He will pass. Four years will go by like nothing. Your argument ought to be 
with the people who see in him an answer to their frustration with the conditions of the country, because those frustrations are here and they're not going away. You want to get rid of Trump, answer those people. Tell them why America first is a bad idea. Tell them why being concerned about who crosses our border is not something that we should worry about. Tell them why China's okay as a trading partner. We're all going to get rich together. If you don't have an answer, Trump brags at every rally about rebuilding the military. I am not a pro throw money at defense person. That's not where Glenn Lowry would come from. I'm still waiting for a Democrat to tell me why he's wrong to want to rebuild the military. They won't even touch it. Instead, they repair to characterological arguments, as you have done. Trump is a jackass. Trump is an idiot. Trump is a moron. Trump is an evil person. Instead of addressing, in my opinion, the fundamental structural questions that people have different, very different views about, and the views which Trump embodies and propounds and enacts are the views of a very substantial number of our fellow citizens. It's my respect for them that keeps me from giving Trump the uh, back of my hand. Let me try this, Glenn. I think that um, I understand what you mean about the people and you know, the people with a capital P and the concerns that they have. For me, I don't know why for me the people is always, it's just this random thing that um, once I was <laughs> at a liquor store in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and I was buying beer or something. And it was run by, you know, people who run liquor stores, you know, hardworking people, in this case, white, those Pennsylvania accents that a linguist enjoys. And it was Trump country. You know, you could see all the signs. And I thought to myself, the person giving me this beer, I'll admit it was actually a bottle of gin. The person giving me this bottle of gin. <laughs> now thought, the truth comes out. <laughs> I thought this nice lady, she voted for that man. Um, and yeah. yes, her concerns are important because she's not an idiot. However, her concerns are represented right now by somebody who, to use your exact words, is a jackass, is an idiot, is a moron, is an evil person. I don't think that that jackass, idiot, moron, evil person is the only possible representative of that woman giving me the, giving me the liquor in the store. I think that I'm watching the Hulu documentary series right now about Hillary Clinton and just watching what Uh, she's been through. And I also fell in love with Elizabeth Warren. They are addressing what that woman at the liquor store thinks and what that woman at the liquor store has been through. And yet somehow people like that never quite make it. Amy Klobuchar, at least halfway, was doing it. And this is something we don't talk about too much, but why is it that somehow that doesn't happen? Is it partly sexism? I mean, Hillary had her problems. But then again, Elizabeth Warren doesn't have those problems. And yet, look at what happened. And you can be very clinical about how she didn't shift left enough or, you know, she was too left, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow, a person who has a plan for that, who could sit down and talk to that woman in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for an hour about all of her questions, somehow doesn't get elected, partly because that woman in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania often doesn't like Elizabeth and instead elects this charismatic baboon. Why is that that the wonky person who has answers for that woman doesn't get in, and instead we get this okay. inflatable doll dummy? Well, let me turn this around on you, but come on, man. Goodness. <laughs> inflatable for them? Oh, come on. Come on. That's... Um, he is... That is so passe. That's 2017 uh, resistance rhetoric. We are now in the year 2020 and there's an election coming. If he's such That's a why baboon and a free. dummy, we don't have anything to worry about. He won't get elected. But as a matter of fact, he's not a baboon and a dummy. He's a pretty shrewd operator who's actually taken a portfolio of his office and placed himself in a position where even with this catastrophe, I think he still has a pretty good chance of getting reelected. I know. But here's what I want to here's what I want to put to you. Not everybody's going to come in a nice package with a bow. Not everybody's going to come speaking the king's English with perfect diction and with a vocabulary of three million words. Okay, uh, some people are going to come as P.T. Barnum, uh, whose qualities <laughs> whose qualities are are varied and uh, interesting. <laughs> okay, I mean, here, let me turn the tables on you. I can remember you once saying to me that uh, you met Al Sharpton somewhere and he was nice. He was. Okay. <laughs> now there's Al Sharpton. I'm not comparing Al Sharpton to Donald Trump. They're not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. I know it's not the same thing at all. I'm talking I know about what how, you mean. 
I'm talking about how people react to other people. Yes. So Sharpton has idiosyncrasies. He has ticks. He has stuff, okay? But the whole package might appeal to a person because he stands for something that they truly believe in, and he advocates for something that they feel he is effective at advocating for. That's Donald Trump. He is who he is. I mean, you know, um, I actually think there's something uh, a little bit uh, endearing about some of his vulnerabilities and these uh, these marathon press conferences, which I've been reading reporters say television shouldn't cover his uh, uh, his daily press conferences because they're his substitute for his rallies. Well, they're right. They are his substitute for me. He can't have the rallies, but... <clears throat> but he's still running for re-election, and this is a way of keeping himself in front of the public on a daily basis in the exercise of the off. Now, they are not pretty, just like those rallies were not pretty. He has ticks. They are significant. I grant you that. But I don't allow the ticks to obscure the fact that what he actually is is a figurehead on behalf of a certain set of impulses in our country, which, as I say, to the extent that they are wrongheaded, need to be refuted, not because of the character defects of their tribune, but because of the logic and the factual inadequacy of those positions. America first, uh, protect the country, uh, uh, watch out for the Chinese, uh, uh, protect people's Second Amendment rights, put conservative judges on the bench. Again, these are issues that I think can be argued uh, on their on their merits without having to say, uh, that uh, I'm voting against this because I don't like the character of the guy who's the figurehead. I you know, like it's it's interesting you say that, and I want to defend myself a little bit. Yeah, do that. One has to be careful with um, this business of, oh, such and such is nice. You know, by all indications, especially <laughs> if you spoke German, Hitler was kind of charming. You know, he was kind of an impish little person. <laughs> Sharpton, I'm 20 years into this now. And so I've got a little bit of history. And that was not by any means the first time I had met him. You know you know how it gets to the point that without really trying, you've met everybody. Like you've been yeah. in a room or a green room. So I met Sharpton for the first time about 20 years ago now. And it's interesting because my time kind of straddled old Sharpton and new Sharpton. And so he was still old Sharpton in the year yeah. 2001. He was still, frankly, much heavier, but more to the point. You know, more the the trash talk and saying stupid things on TV and yeah. smoking out racism where it didn't exist. And I remember being in a room with him. Boy, this was a while ago now. It was when Dinesh D'Souza could be on MSNBC. And there was this TV special. And Al Sharpton was doing his thing. He sits down on the bench and it kind of bounces a little bit. And he makes a little joke. And I thought, boy, he fills a room. And I don't mean his size, but I thought... I can see partly why people like him is that he's charming. He uses language well. You like that person. And I have to kind of smack myself because I thought he is that person I've been calling a liar in print. He's that person who I don't approve of. But my, is he charming? That was all. When I told you I met him again like five years ago, this was a soberer, different Sharpton who I thought was doing a good job of calling attention to urgent issues of racial disparity and education and policing. And that's a whole other conversation that we've had since then. But when I found him nice, I also meant that he seemed sincere. Whereas if I had talked to him 20 years ago when he's uh. saying, bring your yarmulkes back, I could never have condoned any of that just because somebody was charming. But I thought he had, he had grown up. Whereas with Trump, he's like old Sharpton. I don't see any new Trump. So I just wanted to make that clear that I don't fall for people just because they're charming. Uh, I'm glad you had an opportunity to clarify that, John. And I think uh, our um, disagreements about Donald Trump are, have become a highlight of the John and uh, Glenn show uh, <laughs> in recent uh, months. I'm sure the audience will appreciate it. More to come, more to come. Uh, are you feeling safe? Yes. You're not supposed to talk about this too much, but at least from what I've seen, and watch how this might look in a year, it seems like the grisly death toll is going to be with the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions. I am already acquainted with some people who died, but they were people with conditions, you know, and so I have seen some people in their forties and fifties who I've known seen, not seen, but some, some of them three that I can think of have died from this, but they had other stuff. I feel fine and I'm 54. I don't have any preconditions that I'm aware of. And I'm, I assume that my children 
are safe. I'm not, based on what I have been told, I'm not worried about myself. I've also never had the flu. I never get that sick, he said. So, yeah. Do you feel like there's an onslaught? Yeah, well, I'm older than you by, I don't know, I mean, 17 years, something like that. Um, I I do not feel personally endangered. I'm not aware of anybody in my network of associates and my neighbors and so forth who's fallen ill with this virus, but that may only be my ignorance. I'm here in uh, Rhode Island. We do have some cases <clears throat> that caution worry anybody. <laughs> I've had I've had that for a while. <laughs> uh, but uh but I am being a little cautious, you know. I mean, I'm I'm watching where I go and what I do. I'm not going to any uh, crowded uh, uh venues. Of course there aren't any uh that are open anymore. Uh my trainer just uh uh closed down his gym by the mandate of the governor of Rhode Island here. And that concerns me because I think one way that my immune uh uh response stays uh as vital as it could be is for me to get regular exercise and uh, so on. So I'm trying to work out a program here at home where I can keep myself. And the trainer has uh, been very helpful in that, in uh, uh, developing a platform where I can go and watch YouTube videos of workout routines and can communicate with him with a ledger that kind of keeps me accountable. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> now you're making me cough. Keeps me accountable for doing the workouts. Uh, you know, I would not get on an airplane right now and fly to the other side of the country. I wouldn't do that. Um, I might get on a train, but, uh, you know, I don't have any uh, uh, reason to do so, and I'm not in a hurry to do so or to get on a bus. Are the subways still running in New York City? They're running, and they're eerily empty. Yeah, I haven't yeah, been on one That's got to be spooky. That's like out of one of these post-apocalyptic movies or something. Or it's like, it seems like they're going to film something on the train and that's why there's nobody in it. Yeah, I haven't been in about a week, which is a record for me to <clears throat> live in this city and to not ride a train. <clears throat> but yeah, this is something, like, I do my gym stuff at home. I always have because I don't uh-huh. feel like going out. And So yeah, I feel lucky that I've always had my stationary bike and people laugh at me and they say, it's, you're such an old man, you have your exercycle at home. But that means that the gyms being closed does not – I've got my exercise bands. I think more people should invest in that. It's nice to do it at home. You can watch a movie. That's what yeah. I do. So. What I really miss, and, you know, this is going to show my privilege, is uh, my regular massage. Uh, I, I get a weekly <laughs> massage from a very, very skilled therapist, and it just kind of gets all the kinks out, man, you know, and, and uh, we're nice. not doing that for the time being. You I miss that. that. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, John, I don't know. I think we've probably uh, exhausted the mo- the moment here and uh, can close down. We're still friends, even though the jackass is president and I'm singing his praises. The comment section will overflow with recrimination and uh, outrage, but that's all you right. Make, I'm supposedly a contrarian in these conversations. I always feel like I'm walking with the angels. So. You're the contrarian. Well, so, uh, nice to see your means. lovely children, uh, Vanessa and Dahlia. Uh, sorry not to see Martha, but you can convey my best wishes. I and uh, uh, good to be with you again, John. We'll have to do you it too. again soon. Well, neither one of us are going anywhere. So, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it soon.